colony, the colonists there in the 17th century who built a city on a hill, a city that was built not just for the inhabitants, but so that everyone would see it and marvel at its beauty. Their colony, they said to themselves, would be watched by the whole world to see what it could become. This little Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is in so many ways kind of at the heart of of the, the mythology of America, that city on a hill watched by many. There are all kinds of utopias, of course. There's the paradise that Mary asked us to consider during the meditation, our own individual paradise. There's the Garden of Eden, which might be sort of the original highly watched utopia. There's heaven. There's intentional living communities. There's neighborhood blocks, like the one in the children's story this morning. I think perhaps that um, particularly the the diversity of food and the the plentifulness of food might be considered a Washington Ethical Society utopia, as it was described in the, in the story this morning. Some of these utopias are imaginary, existing only in our minds or as a kind of thought experiment. Some of them, like the Massachusetts Bay Colony, are very real, utopias that people have tried to create, tried to live out. The 19th century, which was when ethical culture was founded in 1876, the 19th century was sort of a hotbed of utopian communities. You might remember that from maybe 11th grade history about America. It was a time, I think, of deep unrest in America and a great deal of change. The Civil War, of course, came right smack in the middle of that century. But then, too, there was the Industrial Revolution, huge floods of immigrants, the very beginning of changing roles of women in society. It was a century that held a lot of change, a lot of struggle. And so perhaps it was out of that experience that there was a desire to return to something or to create something, something more pure. And so there are all kinds of 19th century utopian communities. Some of them were uh, religiously based, some were secular. Two of them I know in particular because they were based on transcendental principles, Ralph Waldo Emerson and transcendentalism being kind of very, um, very popular at the time. So there was Brooks Farm, which was based on transcendental principles and the concept of total equality of the sexes and a sort of um, socialism or communitarianism. George Ripley, who founded Brooks Farm, said this about it. If wisely executed, it will be a light over this country and this age. If not the sunrise, it will be the morning star. You can hear again, I think, that desire to have people see your utopia, to see it shining out in front of them. Fruitlands was another utopia created in the 19th century based on transcendental principles. That was a farm that included no, nobody ate um, byproducts of any animal, so it was totally vegan and that had no animal labor on the farm. It was not a long-lived farm. (laughs) There may be ways to do that that work really well, but Fruitlands and Brooks Farm, which were both started as farming, agrarian farming communities, um, by um, authors and um, writers. (laughs) Neither of them quite became the morning star that they might have been imagined, but still there I think you see that hope, that desire to make something new, something amazing. 
And I think now about intentional communities all around D.C. and Maryland, co-housing communities, people that have chosen to live together but in a particular way. Often those communities have, have done studies and, and particular work on their environmental impact, have talked about how they want to be together, how they want to govern themselves. And certainly in, in our time now, we're responding to similar challenges, I think, in many ways that we saw in the 19th century. Rapid changes and kind of the, um, the, the, a further industrial revolution or perhaps a, 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 um, an internet revolution um, and changes in how society works and how people relate to each other. And I think, too, that there are all kinds of utopias, or what people might imagine as utopias now. Some of the religious cults of the last 20 years, many of which ended in tragedy, were imagined as utopias by their founders and their members. There's something, I think, religious about the whole concept of a utopia, particularly if we take religious in its broadest meaning, kind of tying together that which is broken, the, the bonds that tie us to each other. There's a religious impulse to create a different world, to name and see and believe in a different reality, different from the gritty one that's around us, the, the one that's just a little too real for us, perhaps. I think often of a story that I heard um, that comes out of the Jewish tradition, the story of two Jerusalems. So there's an idea that, that right in Jerusalem, that there's the real Jerusalem, the one that you can see when you go there, you know, with all of its struggle and all of its unrest, all of its humanness right there. But then at the same time, there's a second Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of our ideals, the Jerusalem perhaps that the Bible promised, the Jerusalem of beauty and peace, a utopian Jerusalem. I first heard this story from a rabbi at a meeting of the Washington Interfaith Network. She was talking about having visited Jerusalem that past summer and talking to her, to the kids that came with us about those two Jerusalems and how their task as they wandered around and traveled and visited the real Jerusalem was to try to see the other Jerusalem at the same time, to see if they could get those two Jerusalems to come together in their mind, to see them at once. She told this story at this Interfaith Network meeting as a way of kind of rousing the crowd, getting us to think about what was possible in Washington, D.C. And so she asked us the same question about the District of Columbia. Were there two districts of Columbia, the real one, the one that we're in right now with injustice and economic inequality, with not enough jobs and too much unemployment? And was there another District of Columbia out there? Was there one that we could imagine existing just the way the two Jerusalems exist. It was a great story, let me tell you. It went over like wildfire. She actually told the story in a mosque. That's where we were meeting. So folks gathered from churches and synagogues and mosques and neighborhood associations and Wes, all there to talk about what we might be able to do in D.C., and we were inspired by this idea that there was something out there that we could build to, something that we could imagine in the District of Columbia. I think, too, about our closing song this morning, which we'll sing at the end of our platform service. 
It's by the founder of Ethical Culture, Felix Adler, and it's called Hail the Glorious Golden City. And we, we sing it a few times a year here. It starts out, that first stanza, Hail the glorious golden city, pictured by the seers of old. Everlasting light shines o'er it, wondrous things of it are told. Wondrous things of it are told. See, Adler also wanted the chorus to sing about his utopia. It's not just me. (laughs) I think that song is a struggle for some of us. You know, what the heck is uh, Felix Adler talking about here? Is he describing heaven? Did he kind of, you know... I'll lose it a little bit at some point when he was writing this hymn. But if you listen to the next stanza, the one that comes after, it begins, we are builders of that city. All our joys and all our groans help to rear its shining ramparts. All our lives are building stones. The final stanza, you'll see, brings us back to that big dream, what Adler calls the final reign of right, which really is pretty uh, pretty utopian. But I think that we can understand in that hymn, in those words that Adler wrote, what I would call a humanist utopian vision. We are builders of that city, Adler wrote. Our lives are building stones. Will it ever come to be, I wonder, the final reign of right, the the land where, as Adler says, wrong is banished from its borders, It won't, I don't imagine, any more that you can imagine that the two Jerusalems really become one, really join together in that city. In some ways, I think every utopia is an impossibility. From Fruitlands and Brooks Farm, which really didn't work because they didn't use any horses on their plows, to the utopia of a world where justice reigns supreme and all is perfect, they're impossibilities. And yet they exist in such a deep way in our imagination and in our storytelling. The theme of so many religious traditions. That's that's what I wonder about. And what I think it is, is that the two Jerusalems and, and Adler's words, they're about the vision of something. The vision of something magnificent, something wonderful, something impossible. But they're also about the gap the gap between vision and reality, between what we dream and what really is. I remember a seminary class, and I couldn't tell you which one it is now, where the professor told us that that was the key function of religion in anyone's lives, the key function of a religious community, to hold up the dream of what could be and hold up at the same time the reality of what is and to work in the gap in between, to find its mission and its vision in the gap. You see it in all kinds of religious traditions, in the kingdom of God, in the Christian tradition, in the ummah, or the community gathered within the Muslim tradition, the beloved community that Martin Luther King talks about. So what does it mean, I wonder, to see ourselves as holding that utopian vision and that reality at the same time? I wonder if utopia, if our utopia can be about the attempt, not necessarily the result. I think, again, about the neighborhood and the kids' story this morning that we heard. This wonderful, diverse neighborhood, this house full of love, and this one neighbor who who wasn't quite there, who had fear in her heart. 
And I think about the idea that the utopia there was in the trying, was in the coming together and the forgiving, the including and the welcoming. Sometimes when people come to newcomers' Q&As, I know Mary and I have both gotten this question. Well, you say it's the Washington Ethical Society, so does that mean that I have to be perfectly ethical to join? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, it's a liability of our name, I think, you know, that we've come here fully formed as perfect ethical beings. Whereas the reality, of course, is that this is the place where we build the dream of an ethical society, the utopia of an ethical society, and where we try and fail as we seek to live out that dream. It's about intention, not result. For me, much of the utopian vision that I hold at Wes for progressive religion in general and for myself is built in multicultural work, in anti-oppression work, in anti-racism work, in our work here to become a certified welcoming congregation, welcoming to the LGBTQ community. The idea of becoming a community of many people, many ideas, many identities, and at the same time seeing ourselves stretched and changed and transformed, that's utopia to me. That's the vision that I hold forth. And so I wonder if we might be able to have a a utopian welcome to a real reality. Many of you have seen our gigantic rainbow banner on on our building. You know, when we got our welcoming congregation certification, what we were most excited about in the office was putting up that banner. And I think we found perhaps the largest one we could find. We started with the idea of a little flag by the sign, you know, like a little, no. We just went for the 10 foot one. That banner speaks to our utopian welcome, our welcome to all sexual and gender identities, our hope that people feel that welcome just when they drive by on 16th Street, that they feel it still when they walk in our doors. The banner doesn't mean we always do it right. Do I remember always not to assume relationships, not to assume personal pronouns? Do I always manage to break out of my heteronormative little bubble? No. But should we take down the rainbow banner because of that? No, I think that banner tells the world that we have a vision, that we see the gap, and that our work is bridging that gap in our very human way, with all of our human frailties and foibles. In fact, I think we have to try to create that utopia, to hold out that vision and notice the gap precisely because it's a human way that we approach it. Progressive religion doesn't put a utopia in heaven out there sometime. We build it here. Adler's song, which we'll close with this morning, makes sense for us only if we take the responsibility for making our lives the building stones. Otherwise, it is about some final reign of right over which we have no control that we can look at and marvel at and even sing about, but for which we have no responsibility, no accountability. And if humanism is about anything, it is about accountability to each other, accountability to other communities, accountability, I think, to the human story writ large, 
and making that human story one that tries always to close the gap between reality and vision. When I walk up to Wes on Sunday morning and see that banner, for me, it speaks to the vision and the gap at the same time. It speaks to our mission in the world to close that gap in ourselves, in our community, through the whole District of Columbia. That one day that vision comes closer to reality, that we can hold them almost within the same, the same frame, the two Jerusalems. I want to close with words from Howard Zinn, the author of A People's History of the United States, who can hardly be accused of not seeing the world as it is with all its grittiness and human failure. But here's what he said. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, We don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. Closing that gap, even seeing the gap and putting ourselves right in that place, a marvelous victory.